Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Belarus is sometimes referred to as Europe's last dictatorship. Since 1994, it has been ruled by just one man, Alexander Lukashenko, and he has ruled the country with an iron fist. Still, in order to maintain the patina of legitimacy, regular elections are held in Belarus, but they are neither free nor fair. Such was the case in early August, when Belarusians went to the polls for presidential elections and, lo and behold, Lukashenko announced that he secured another term with 80% of the vote. This time, though, Belarusians were not prepared to accept that result. They took to the streets in record numbers in massive protests across the country. Government security forces cracked down on protesters, and the internet was even shut off across the country. Meanwhile, the main opposition candidate, a woman named Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, went to the government election office to officially protest the result. One day later, she was in Lithuania after having released a video calling for an end to protests, and the video was, by all appearances, recorded under extreme duress. On the line to provide some context for understanding these recent events in Belarus is Stephen Nix. He is the regional director for Eurasia at the International Republican Institute and a longtime policy hand focusing on former Soviet republics. We kick off discussing Lukashenko's background and the tactics he used to stay in power for so long. We then have a broader conversation about this pivotal moment for Belarus and how Russia, Europe, and the United States may respond. So this is a rapidly unfolding situation as I record this, uh, but this conversation I think does a very good job of giving you the context you need to understand events as they unfold. And before we start, a quick note from World Vision. If you're interested in hearing more about topical global stories, check out Rising to Respond, a podcast that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for humanitarians to fight COVID-19 around the world. Brought to you by World Vision, they are covering stories you're not seeing in the news. Hear from global leaders, frontline workers, and children about the realities they're facing during this global pandemic. You can find Rising to Respond on your favorite podcast player or visit wvi.org slash rising to respond. All right, now here is my conversation with Stephen Nix. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, Alexander Lukashenko in 1994 was uh, relatively obscure, a manager of a kohosp, a, uh, a collective farm in Belarus. And he ran for the presidency in 1994 on an anti-corruption platform and was a surprise winner of that particular election, which most of us believe to be the, the last free and fair uh, elections to be held in Belarus. So he was elected in 1994 and has remained in power for the past 26 years, primarily by using the following three levers. Number one, domination of television media. Number two is basically offering financial incentives uh, in a state-run economy to the Belarusian people in the form of uh, salaries for state workers and pensions for pensioneri, for retirees. And then third, uh, by uh, blatant and outlandish repression. Uh, the opposition has been intimidated uh, for years, repressed. Uh, I'll give you probably the best example. This was during the uh, Bush administration. We brought the uh, the main leaders, the main political party, opposition leaders of Belarus, uh, who actually met with President Bush in the Oval Office. And when I looked around the room, uh, we had six representatives. All six of them had spent some time in a Belarusian jail or a Belarusian prison. That gives you the type of uh, sense of the, the level of repression Lukashenko has used to maintain power and to intimidate any opposition from any source. Was there a point, though, in his career uh, in which he was broadly popular? Well, I would say that he enjoyed a certain level of popular popularity primarily because of this social contract with the Belarusian people. We will continue to provide you with reasonable salaries and pensions if you're willing to surrender a certain number of your basic rights, the right to assemble, the right to protest, uh, the right to free opinion. Uh, but that contract has broken down because uh, – uh, and we'll get to this later because this social contract, again, which is based on economic incentives, has broken down over the years. And recently, uh, that has fueled a lot of the protest movement. People are unhappy with their economic situation. Young people don't believe that they have any opportunities for education or for employment. And so that promise, that promise that Lukashenko has made is something he can no longer keep. And that, is, that has sparked a lot of the outrage that you've seen unfold in the last several months. The people of Belarus were generally tolerant of their oppression so long as they maintained a certain standard of living. I think that's fair, yes. Um, why didn't Belarus, say, go the way of other countries in the region at the time, like, say, Lithuania or Latvia, which are now you know, liberal democracies and members of the European Union? That's an excellent question. Uh, the way I would respond is Lukashenko was successful in creating uh, what many experts refer to as a fear society. People were afraid to express themselves. Uh, and the standard we use is, does a citizen feel free to go into their main square in their capital and voice their political beliefs, especially if they are opposite from the, the ruling uh, government? 
And the answer in Belarus is clearly no. I mean, no protests. Uh, you've seen the crackdowns before, 2010, massive arrests, brutal crackdown on the opposition. So the Belarusian people have been cowed for many years by this very brutal regime of Lukashenko. But now we're seeing signs that the fear society is disappearing. People during this presidential campaign, they attended rallies in mass, huge rallies. We've never seen anything like this before. You know, 50 to 60,000 people appearing at demonstrations in Minsk, but other places, Brest, Hradno, everywhere. People are fed up with the economic situation. People are fed up with the handling of the pandemic, uh, during which Lukashenko was completely dismissive of the effects and the reach of the coronavirus, and just overall completely dissatisfied uh, with their leadership. And they're expressing that. They expressed that during the campaign. And we believe they expressed that on election day by electing Tikhanovskaya president. Um, and, and we'll get to that because we're speaking at this kind of bizarre moment in which uh, there appears to be what have looked almost looked like a hostage video in which Tikhanovskaya um, released these kind of YouTube videos, uh, ostensibly possibly from Lithuania, where she uh, was removed or, or had fled. It's, it's unclear at this moment, but but we'll get to that. Um, but you know, before we do, so at what moment did sort of the economy of Belarus start to fracture to the point where that kind of social contract was fraying? Well, this has taken place over a, uh, a series of years, of decades. Uh, Lukashenko has been desperate to shore up this state-run economy. He survived primarily by subsidized gas, natural gas and oil from the Russian Federation, which he would then resell to European clients at market prices. So for years, he survived economically based on uh, these subsidized energy prices from Russia. Just if I'm understanding this correctly, so Russia would sell fuel to Belarus at like a reduced rate and Belarus would you know, resell that to the rest of Europe at a higher rate. And that is how they would fill their government coffers. That is one of the most effective ways that they balance their budget was through these subsidies from Russia. But Russia began to tire of this. Russia was demanding more and more of this union movement, uh, the agreement signed between Putin and Lukashenko to move their countries closer together, have a common con uh, currency, common defense, other ties. And uh, Lukashenko was resisting uh, these moves. And the penalty he paid was Russia began to withdraw these very, very generous energy subsidies. Uh, and in recent uh, weeks, there has been sort of, it's seemingly before the elections, like a deteriorating relationship between Lukashenko and Putin. Yes, absolutely. The signs were there that uh, Russia was trying to impose its will. Lukashenko was resisting. Uh, Russia wanted to station an airbase in Belarus. Lukashenko resisted that. Uh, there are other signs that Lukashenko was resisting this closer relationship that was causing problems in the relationship. And then I'll just say, you know, somewhat the, the erratic behavior of, of Lukashenko, I think, uh, is puzzling to, uh, to the Kremlin. Uh, they don't always understand why he does things. And that has contributed to a deteriorating relationship. Uh, Russia expects to have a very reliable client 
uh, in the presidency of Belarus. And they don't always have that with Lukashenko. And it was in this sort of moment of shaky relationship with Putin, which I think since has been shorn up, that uh, Pompeo visited Minsk, right? That is correct. Uh, made a visit, the first uh, high-level visit in, to Belarus in many years. Uh, as your listeners probably know, we have not had full diplomatic representation in Minsk for over 12 years. Uh, our ambassador was recalled. Uh, this was a, a dispute over sanctions that the United States had uh, placed upon uh, Belarus and certain individuals. And so uh, we haven't had any diplomatic presence, no ambassador there in 12 years, and certainly no, uh, uh, no high-level representation like the Secretary of State until Pompeo's visit. And what was the thinking behind a visit like that? Well, I think the United States saw an opportunity here uh, to draw Belarus closer to the West and away from Russia's orbit. Again, you know, Belarus is free to orientate itself uh, wherever it wants, but I think the Secretary made it clear that the United States was open to a new relationship if Belarus would undertake certain steps to reform, for example, respecting human rights, uh, the secretary made that very clear, free and fair elections, all of those things. And in addition to that, the secretary announced that uh, the U.S. would be sending a shipment of LNG, liquefied natural gas, from the United States to Belarus. Uh, the first such uh, purchase of, of energy from the United States ever uh, for Belarus. So that's like a very direct um, counterpoint to to Russia. You know, use, uh, it's just like a very sort of direct way of saying, you know, here we are, we're here too. You know, why, why don't you come to us? Yes, and I think that was very much the intention of the State Department uh, to send those signals to Belarus and to Russia. But, yeah, but, but then this election happened uh, and everything seems to have upended whatever um, – entreaties the U.S. was making to uh, Belarus and any sort of antagonism that seemed to be brewing between Belarus and, and Russia. Can you just sort of set up this this uh, election uh, for listeners? What was at stake? Who, are, who is running against Lukashenko? Uh, and was there ever any doubt that Lukashenko would be declared the winner? Well, let me just say at the outset, this election was different than others from the outset. Newcomers appeared on the political scene, uh, and I'm talking about uh, Tikhonovsky, I'm talking about Babarika, uh, I'm talking about Sepkala. All newcomers had never been involved in Belarusian politics before, really took the stage and began to make inroads with the electorate. One of the ways they've done this, and this goes back to the three levers of power I alluded to in my opening statement, media. Uh, Lukashenko had always dominated TV, and TV was always the prime vehicle for Belarusians to obtain political information. But we're seeing that's changing. Uh, social media is basically catching up and surpassing TV in some of the countries of the former Soviet Union. We see this in other places, in Ukraine, in Georgia, in Moldova. It's certainly happening in Belarus. So all of a sudden, these new candidates had a platform in social media to get their message out. And what was their message? This is the other interesting part. It was all about change. If you look at what these candidates started to talk about, we want to change our country, we want to change our politics, we want to change our economy, we want to change our judicial system. 
It was all about change. And it's what we describe as a change electorate began to react and to respond to this message positively. And we saw this with the growing number of crowds that would attend uh, these campaign rallies for these candidates. And again, what was the reaction of the Belarusian authorities to immediately uh, jail Tikhonovsky and Babariko? And that was that was a typical Lukashenko response to, to start jailing his political opponents. So that's what happened. And these are again, this was a very organic movement by civil society and uh, NGOs, people who've never been involved in politics before, and didn't emanate from the traditional opposition political parties that we at IRI had worked with uh, for, for many, many years. So these people basically took center stage, uh, and we moved to try to support them any way that we could. Uh, but then these jailings certainly resulted in Tikhonovskaya taking the place of her husband, uh, getting on the ballot. And then running a campaign, again, really focused almost exclusively on change. She stood at every rally and said, I'm the candidate for change. I will change our country. Vote for me if you want to see change. And again, that message resonated throughout the country. She became very, very popular. And uh, again, this was really astounding. Two months ago, she had been a homemaker and a part-time teacher. Uh, and then she's basically running a neck and neck campaign with uh, someone who's been in office for 26 years. So for someone who was a political novice, I think she handled her campaign very well, was very effective, again, using these rallies, but also social media to convey this message of change. Then the you know election itself happened and the official results uh, were something, what, 80% of votes in favor of Lukashenko and only 10% in favor of the opposition, which obviously, you know, That's on its correct. face seems false. I mean, you know, you, you could have gone for at least like the Saddam Hussein 99%, but uh, I don't know, he, what, he tampered it down to like 80%, which uh, I suppose to him might have seemed reasonable, but to the rest of the world obviously seems like a total farce. Yes, it's a blatant falsification. And there are several methodologies at play here that he uses to falsify results, Lukashenko. The first is the utilization of early voting. Belarus has always had five days of early voting. And the observation of early voting is very, very restricted. And what we have observed and what we have anecdotal uh, evidence of is that at nighttime, when the ballot boxes are left unsecured in these administrative buildings, the chairman or other staff of the election commission merely enter the premises at nighttime and stuff the ballot boxes. So there's five days of unobserved, unsupervised, unsecured ballot boxes. And that traditionally has the way that, that he has um, falsified at least that part. And it's notable that um, there was the CEC reported 41.7 percent of the ballots cast were cast during early voting. So it's What's a clear the indicator. The Central Election Commission of Belarus, which is the, the body that administers elections uh, nationally. And remember that Tikhonovskaya had a very clear message everywhere she went. She told her supporters, don't cast your ballots during early voting. I'm asking you to show up on election day. 
The early voting is fraudulent. We want a free and fair election. The best way to do that and to make sure your vote is counted is show up on election day. And that's what we believe uh, that her supporters did. So yes, a completely falsified uh, election. Uh, and I'll, I'll illustrate this with an example. Five years ago, uh, Karatkevich was the opposition candidate who ran against Lukashenko. Lukashenko racked up 87%, according to the Central Election Commission, and Karatkevich uh, attained a total of 4% after running a very good campaign. Uh, we have data that shows that after the election, when people were asked how they voted, 20% stated that they voted for um, for Karatkevich, the opposition candidate. So you compare the 20% and the 4% means that the that her vote total was falsified uh, five times downward. Hmm. All right. Now, if that's if you accept that premise, you look at Tikhonovskaya's number, she got basically 10%. Well, based on what happened five years ago and that correlation, if that happened again, that means she probably got 50% and plus some of the election, which by our calculation means she is the president. She's the duly elected president of Belarus. Lukashenko has lost this election. And so it was in the face of this obviously fraudulent election that thousands of people took to the streets in Belarus uh, in what appeared to be, you know, the largest protests in years and almost sort of an unprecedented um, display of, of just grievance against the government. Uh, what was the government's response and, and sort of what do we know about uh, what happened in these days after the election? Sure. Well, this comes right out of Lukashenko's playbook. Uh, this happened in 2010, but it was magnified this time. Minister of Interior troops were brought in, complete crackdown. Police blocked all avenues, blocked all access. Internet and social media platforms were shut down, blocked. Uh, so they cut off communications, tried to prevent people from entering the major cities from outside, and then inside the cities, tried to lock down the main uh, squares where people would normally gather. So it wasn't just the police. There was a brutal uh, crackdown, tear gas, stun grenades, water cannons, a complete brutal crackdown of any opposition. And I, it was in these last couple of days that my understanding is the last time that Tikhonovskaya was, was seen in Belarus in person was walking into that central election committee office to officially challenge the results of her of the election. Is that right? That's correct. She went there with her legal team uh, to file this motion, uh, file this complaint. And during that time, our understanding from from talking to her team, uh, she was separated from her legal team and was one on one with the authorities. So we can't say exactly what happened, but our speculation, our guess is that she was given a choice to either uh, leave the country and go to Vilnius, Lithuania, where her two children are, or to face arrest. Again, we don't know exactly. That's our analysis of the situation. So now the question is, what happens next? Now that the leader of this movement is outside of the country, uh, we're trying to get in contact with Tikhonovskaya to ascertain our plans. We hope and believe that she will continue to lead the opposition movement from, from uh, Vilnius. 
Uh, Vilnius, Lithuania is a two and a half hour drive from Minsk. So she's in very close proximity. We hope that she will continue to exert leadership and assert the same message that she is the duly elected president of Belarus and that to urge the people to demand that the pretender who lost the election step down. So that's what we hope will happen. We've not spoken with her since she left the country, trying to make contact with her. Uh, she's under the care of the, the Lithuanian uh, foreign ministry. And so we're also reaching out to the ministry. Uh, but the the protest movement continues regardless. Uh, just this morning, after news of her departure uh, was released, several trade unions, several major enterprises, factories have announced widespread strikes. So we think that this protest movement will continue regardless and we'll be monitoring, but that's the way we see this playing out. What do you make of those videos that were released in which she asked the um, her supporters to sort of stand down? Well, again, we, uh, we believe, and again, that we've received uh, some intelligence from our friends and colleagues in Lithuania that those interviews were conducted under duress, that those interviews took place while she was still physically at the Central Election Commission. And so we don't place a lot of credence in what was said. It's very obvious if you've seen the video that she was under a lot of duress, a lot of stress. And so uh, you know, we're, we're waiting to hear more from her now that she's in Vilnius and will be free to speak. And I should say, for those who have not seen this, it looks like almost like a classic hostage video. It's just kind of awful to, to see. Yes, you can tell by the pained expression on her face, you know, the drawn out statements. Clearly, she was being forced uh, to make these statements. I, I should say, I don't speak a, a lick of uh, Belarusian or, or much Russian, uh, but just by the format of it, you can tell it was clearly under duress. Yes, yes. Um, so... You, know, you mentioned that the protests will continue. Um, what sort of events or inflection points do you see in the next days and weeks or even months ahead? Well, what I think has to take place now is a very united front, a very strong stand on the part of the United States government and the European Union, the European EU countries to stand with the people of Belarus. And to make it very clear to the regime that uh, they expect an accurate count of the ballots, which obviously didn't take place, uh, but demand that Lukashenko um, address the concerns of the people who want a free and fair election. And I would go far as to, to suggest that they demand that he step aside and uh, allow the duly elected president to take office. Whether or not that happens, I don't know. But clearly, there have to be consequences uh, for these actions on the part of the Lukashenko regime. I would predict that that means a return to economic sanctions, both sectorally and individually, and really a return to where relations were, let's say, eight or 10 years ago, where he was a pariah to the West. I just don't believe that Western governments can stand idly by and see an election completely stolen from the Belarusian people, and then this complete uh, repression, cruelty, beating, 
uh, exercised upon the Belarusian people. I think the West has to take a very tough line with the regime. Is it fair to assume that if the West does take that tough line with the regime, uh, the Russians will simply respond in kind by once again propping him up and giving him sort of the kind of economic and diplomatic support to counter that kind of pressure from the West? Well, let's face it. If this plays out and uh, Lukashenko somehow remains in office, he's a weakened president. He's a weakened figure. But this is exactly what the Kremlin would like to see. They would like to see a weakened Lukashenko who is more dependent on support from Russia, whether that's economic, whether that's diplomatic, whether that's political. Uh, That's what Russia really desires, is to have a a client state next door, like they had with Viktor Yanukovych in Ukraine, who is compliant and will bend to their will. That's what they want. So one can make the argument that the Kremlin will benefit if Lukashenko remains in office. But I see the biggest benefit at all to this situation is the fact that the Belarusian people have shed this notion of a fear society, have stood up for their rights, have stood up for their right to elect a president. And once people uh, reach this plateau where they feel free to make these demands for accountable government, it's very difficult to push that back. I think the Belarusian people have reached a point where they are going to continue to demand democracy and rule of law, representative government. And as long as those demands are made, Lukashenko will be in a very difficult position. Because let me return to what I said at the outset. Lukashenko has remained in power using three primary levers. Number one, domination of the TV market, which we've seen is no longer tenable because of the rise in social media. The second is the economic contract that he had with the Belarusian people. This contract is broken. He can no longer keep his economic promises to the Belarusian people. So he has one lever remaining, and that's repression. And I don't see how how much longer he can remain in power using only that lever. Uh, Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you think so. Uh, It's a great story. And again, we're, we're trying to reach out to Tikhonovskaya um, again, our, our hope is she will continue to lead this movement um, from from uh, from Vilnius. Uh, that remains to be seen, but I, I think this movement continues regardless, and that's the most important part, Mark. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Stephen Nix. That was very helpful. Uh, I really appreciated the context that you provided, uh, and frankly, it's going to help me a lot understand events as they unfold in the next weeks and, and days and months. So, thank you. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.